Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This episode of Positively Track is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Jim Stoffel, Joyce Marin, Carl Morris, and associate producer William Smith. Visit patreon.com slash positively track to help support the podcast. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, shout outs, associate producer credits, and more. Thank you for your support and keep trekking. Captain Kirk, I would appreciate any suggestions you might have. First, move us within transporter range. Beam those people aboard the Enterprise. What about the gravimetric distortions? They'll tear us apart. Risk is part of the game. You want to sit in that chair. Well, here we go. Another episode of the Positively Trek Book Club here on the Positively Trek Network. We're not actually a network. It just sounded really good in my head to say that. I'm Dan Gunther. With me, as always, is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you doing today? Ready to talk some Star Trek books? I am. I like to go by the name of Bruce Network Gibson because it just sounds really good in my head. (laughs) I like it. I like it. Yeah. You add network to anything. It just sounds important, you know? It does. Yeah. You should check out the movie from the 1970s called Network. It's really good. Well, we're not here to talk about that movie, although that would be fun. We should do that sometime. We're here to talk about Treklet and in particular, the novel from The Lost Era, Serpents Among the Ruins by David R. George III, uh, published in 2003 and set in the year 2311, so towards the beginning of the 24th century, aboard the Enterprise B, under everyone's favorite Enterprise captain, Captain John Harriman, as seen in the film Star Trek Generations. So, Bruce, did you read this novel before, or is this your first time? I did. I read it sometime shortly, I guess, after it came out. Actually, it was probably a few years after it. But yeah, I did read it, and this is now my second time through it, but I really didn't remember that much about it, except for the fact that I read it, it was had Harriman in it, and it had Sulu in it. Nice. Yeah, I, I read this back when it first came out as well, and I did read it a second time years ago uh, when I, was, I, I wasn't a host yet, but I was a lowly guest on Literary Treks, And we talked about this novel. So this is at least my third time reading this book. And it's one I really enjoyed. I wish I would have realized that because I would have gone back and listened to that episode. Oh, I almost did just to kind of refresh my memory, what I thought about it back then and that sort of thing. But uh, I I didn't get a chance to do that. Darn. I mean, I did listen to the episode when it came out because I've listened to every episode. But yeah, just to refresh my mind on what you said, that would have been excellent. (laughs) I'm kind of curious now, too. I'm almost glad I didn't. I want to maybe listen to that after we record this and just see if, if it still kind of aligns with what I thought then, or, you know, if I'm talking out of my butt now or then or what, I'm not sure. So this is a novel, like I said, I've read several times before, and this era of Star Trek really fascinated me, which is kind of why I wanted to dive into the Lost Era. This whole period of time 
in between the original films and the next generation, and especially set aboard the Enterprise B, which is a ship we don't know a lot of the lore about because, you know, we see a bit of it at the start of Star Trek Generations, and that's really it. We don't know what that ship went on to do. We don't know how their mission ended or anything like that. And this novel gives us just a little bit of a peek into that. It's not the only novel to do so. There have been a few other appearances of the Enterprise B in Star Trek literature. One important one is actually referenced in this novel as well. So it's still nice to get a glimpse into this this period we don't know a lot about. It's also great to see more about Captain Harriman because when you watch generations, you start to wonder, why do they put this guy on the bridge of the Enterprise? The Enterprise following Kirk, this guy who doesn't seem to know what to do and seems a little green at this. But we get backstory on him, not just in this novel, but previous ones. And there's been some comics, too. And it's great to see that he's actually grown more into the role and is a competent captain now. Yeah, that's something that I feel this novel does really well is kind of, for lack of a better term, rehabilitate that character a bit because he really is kind of this punching bag in Star Trek lore as an ineffectual captain who doesn't know what to do, who's flustered, who's out of his element. You know, when we see him in Generations, has this shadow of Kirk looming over him that he can't seem to escape from. He has to rely on Kirk's experience in order to get out of the situation. So it's nice to see him, if nothing else, kind of flying on his own here and really being what a Starfleet captain is, competent and good at his job. And not only that, but like excelling at his job as well. And I mentioned earlier in the show when I said it's good to see Harriman and Sulu. Those were the two characters I remember that were part of this book. I need to clarify when I say Sulu, I'm talking Demora Sulu. Mm -hmm. So it's good to see her character develop in this too. Yeah. So... Commander Sulu at this point is the first officer. And like you say, Commander Demora Sulu played in Generations by Jacqueline Kim. And it's kind of fun to imagine that character because even though she's only in Generations along with the rest of the Enterprise B crew for a very short period of time, I feel like she makes her mark. And in that movie, she's just an ensign. She's the helmsman. But this is over a decade later, and she's now the first officer under Harriman. And it's kind of fun to see how her career has progressed and how she has become really a competent and terrific officer as well, kind of following in her father's footsteps there. Yeah, she accomplished something that her father didn't, and that was becoming first officer of the Enterprise. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, Demora Sulu, a big part of this novel and, and featured on the cover alongside Harriman, of course. This really is kind of setting up what's going on in the, at this time period. We've got this political situation that's kind of the backdrop with the Romulans. The Romulans are kind of the big threat in this novel. It seems like everything is kind of just on the precipice of possibly turning into w open warfare. We've got the novel starting out with the Romulans invading a planet and Harriman and his team kind of caught there when the Romulans invade. And we learn a little bit about the nemesis, I guess, of this novel, Harriman's nemesis, Admiral Vokar. And I really think the, the relationship between these two characters is really interesting. Yeah, Vokar came across to me as a typical Romulan commander. I can just picture him a little older. He's a little small guy. I mean, not small, small, but shorter than Harriman. 
and just typical Romulan fashion, not trusting anything and just wants to seize power. And he's all about power and moving up in the ranks. It's all so important to him. And I love how Harriman later in the books, it kind of plays him and puts him in a situation earlier in a flashback scene. What happens then from the scene where Vokar loses his chance to move up he gets demoted later you know so i like the interplay with these two and how vokar is the villain or like you said the nemesis to harriman in this book it really plays well and harriman really stands up to him too yeah they really go toe to toe and it really is a a fun way to be able to see what kind of a captain harriman is because again we didn't really get that in generations we caught him kind of with his pants down at a bad moment and in this we get to see him and and how he interacts and the fact that he's been captain for over a decade now, we get a sense of that history that there's kind of been this, these encounters with this admiral time and again kind of thing. I liked that bit of establishment of kind of a an old time adversary that they've been at this for a while. Yeah, and Vicar also pertaining to the title of this book, Serpent Among the Ruins, Vicar even calls out to Harriman, Are you the serpent? You know, are mm-hmm. you the one in the ruins? Are you one that, you know, lies in ruins, either fault yourself or seek the serpent? And are you the serpent? And he's saying it's an old Romulan t- tale. And I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. And, and an interesting bit of foreshadowing, too, because yes. of what's going on in this novel. So we're going to get into spoilers. So if you haven't read this novel, you may want to do so before you listen to this. If you don't care about spoilers, by all means, listen on. But we are going to talk a bit about kind of, there's a bit of a twist towards the end of the novel and we'll get there. We'll, we'll talk a bit without getting to that, but we will eventually reveal that. So just consider this your warning. Yes. Come on, baby. Let's do the twist. (laughs) so while this is all happening we have this invasion like we said of this planet it's called Koltari that's all happening but at the same time there's these negotiations happening between the Romulans the Klingons and the Federation this kind of uh, three-party negotiation going on one of the things that's happening and and again this is it's all kind of smoke and mirrors but there's there's this trial of this warp new warp drive on this starship the USS Universe that's being tested by Starfleet. Okay, first of all, when they're describing the ship, the universe, they said like that it had like a, a a kind of elongated saucer, but the the secondary hull was kind of triangular and and pulling back from it with like extra long big warp nacelles. I was like, they're just they're describing the Discovery. <laughs> I was I had a hard time not picturing Discovery when the universe was doing its thing in this novel. Well, that's interesting because this novel was written 15 years before Discovery. <laughs> yeah, way before Discovery was ever. Yeah, so it was just kind of a neat coincidence. I was like, huh, I can kind of picture the Discovery here. I hadn't thought about that. No, I, I didn't picture that. That's pretty cool. But, you know, I like how they make reference to transwarp testing that we saw in the movies and how that was a failure. So now this is more of this like hyperwarp testing. Mm-hmm. It's another version of it. Yeah. And and it all seems to be going well. There's this hyperwarp test. But then there's an accident and the universe explodes. That sounds bad. I don't mean that the universe (laughs) explode. This ship called the universe explodes uh, while at warp trying to achieve this hyper warp drive. You know, it's this huge amount of destruction 
And one of the ships that's caught in the path of this destruction is the ship that Captain Harriman's father is aboard, Admiral John Blackjack Harriman. He's grievously injured and near death. Uh, now, this is an interesting character. We've seen him before in the Peter David novel, The Captain's Daughter. And this is where a lot of their backstory comes from, this kind of strained relationship between the Admiral and Captain Harriman. So, yeah, what did you think of this whole relationship between these two characters? I didn't like it. And it has nothing to do with the writing. It's just, I don't like that they didn't get along. I mean, as we go through the novel and we start to realize that we have the two Harrimans, both named John. So in, in the case of this, I'll call one captain and the other one Blackjack. The father is Blackjack. Blackjack seemed to be a real Jack. I don't know what that means, but a real jerk Jack <laughs> is what I'm getting at. Because... Okay, there's a rift between the two. I mean, I understand that Blackjack thought that his son was weak and undeserving of his position and, and because he, ha he looked at his son as being a medal and he didn't feel like the medal he's wearing around his neck is worthy enough. It's not good enough for him because he says his son is undisciplined and ungrateful and weak. And it's like... You know, he's just holding him up to this high standard so that he himself could look good. And the part I have a problem with is, and again, it's not about the writing. It's just, I just don't like this guy because even when he's on death's bed and Demore Sulu comes to him and says, it's basically saying, you know, give me some of your last words. Your son loves you. I'm just letting you know your son loves you. And he's basically just like, yeah, he's so weak. He's nothing. Like, he's, he still can't resolve anything. And his mm -hmm. son seems to kind of reach out to him at times, and it's just like... But then, you know, our Captain John Harriman just kind of lets it roll off him. He's like, well, this is the way it's always been. I just have to move forward. I don't really have a dad. It, it's all just business now. And I didn't, I didn't like this character. No, it, and it, it's brutal, and it's hard to read, and... It's really cutting and, and it doesn't have that kind of pat Hollywood thing where the father comes to his senses on his deathbed and admits that he's so hard on his son because he loves him or something like that. Like, it's nothing like that. He's and I just, appreciate that. I, I kind of appreciate that, too. It's not cliched. It's cr he's cruel right to the end. And I mean, you know, stretching back early in their relationship back to when... uh Captain Harriman, you know, crashed his father's Corvette through the back wall of their, no, wait, that's, that's, that's Cameron. That's something else. Never mind. <laughs> I, I had to get a Ferris Bueller's reference in there, right? Come on. <laughs> it's so funny you said that because at one point I thought you could play that into this. I did think that when I was reading it. <laughs> Just like a little one offline. Like, do you remember when you crashed my shuttle after joyriding in it all day? <laughs> Cameron doesn't get along with his father. Neither does Harriman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Alan Ruck characters just play that so well, right? So, <laughs> But yeah, no, this is, it's not a, a typical Hollywood story, which, like you said, I appreciate as well. I think that's an interesting take, and it never does get resolved to the satisfaction of anybody, really. It's just, it's awful right to the end, which I feel is probably more realistic, or or at least happens you know not everything ends you know nice and and happy it makes sense that this would end this way and it feels very realistic 
I think the, the thing I'm disappointed with with Blackjack is the fact that even on Death's Bed, he had to make a, a comment about a yeah. son that was cruel. He, he could have just not said anything. Yeah, he, he had to score that point, right? He just had to get it in there. And why? Because, I mean, I don't feel like it doesn't really come across that they were in this bitter bang out fight or something. You know, it's just got up his crawl that his son just isn't worthy enough. He has a mm-hmm. daughter. He doesn't seem to have a problem with that. But, oh, his son, that's the metal that is tarnished around his neck. And it's too bad. Like, it really feels like Captain Harriman has spent his life to this point and will likely continue to spend his life trying to prove himself because of what this relationship with his father has done to him, which is, you know, he's he's done it. Like, he's a good captain. If you read this novel and come away from it thinking that he's not good at his job, you read a different novel because he is a really great Starfleet captain, I think. And it's really too bad that he'll probably never think that he measures up to whatever imaginary thing his father thinks he has to measure up to i believe that 18 years earlier on generations captain harriman was the way he was and one reason was because he didn't have confidence in himself because of the relationship with his father his father was always putting him down i like to believe that 18 years later at this point he doesn't let his father get to him anymore. So his confidence mm-hmm. has been built up and he's proved to himself that he can do what he does and he doesn't need his father's approval. And he doesn't care really what his father thinks. He, he knows the man he is. He still loves his father and wishes he has a relationship with him, but you know, it just is what it is. And I think he can move on from it. Well, like we said, the Admiral is horribly injured in this accident, but there's also something else going on. There's actually a cloaked Romulan ship observing this experiment at the Bonneville Flats is is where they call this test area, which I thought was pretty clever. The observing Romulans look at this data and see all of this destruction that has been caused by the explosion of this test bed ship, and they decide that... This must have been the testing of a Federation meta weapon, a weapon of mass destruction, which, you know, is something that kind of reverberates through this novel and causes a whole bunch of political tension. We've kind of alluded to every, not everything is, a, is as it seems, but this interpretation of this explosion as a weapon of mass destruction was not an intended consequence that was not supposed to happen. So I thought that was an interesting path for the novel to take that, you know, this this plan that we'll kind of outline later doesn't go exactly perfectly. No, but it comes close. Very close, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this meta weapon, which we know isn't, because we know that they're testing this hyperwarp, and as the Romulans present this to the Klingons, then I was just thinking, okay, we have to clear this up. And I wasn't sure if the Federation would say, hey, we weren't testing a weapon. We were testing this new hyperdrive hyper warp technology because i thought at the same time the federation and starfleet are going to be like well we don't want them to know what we're really testing but we don't want them to know that we're we don't want them to think we're testing a meta web weapon so you have to tell them something right but at Mm -hmm. least they were truthful and they gave them the data they gave them all the schematics that show how to make this hyper warp drive but there was also some other things going on playing with cloaking technology too but so i was a little worried at this point because I also didn't think that the Romulans and Klingons would believe them and the war would start. 
over this mm-hmm. thing and it would be a misunderstanding. And even if they believe they were testing this new technology, they would wonder, well, why didn't you tell us? At least the Klingons were since they're friends now. Exactly. So the Enterprise is given the task basically of taking the schematics for the hyperwarp, what they were testing there, to this peace summit between the Romulans, the Federation, and the Klingons at Algeron Station. The way they approach this is they say, like, we'll make this available to everybody. We're not testing a weapon, and we can prove that. It's a it's a warp drive. And we're also not going to use it as a first strike, like we'll be able to get to your forces faster and, and that kind of thing, because we'll make it freely available. You'll see everything, basically, to kind of set everyone's minds at ease. So they have to take this evidence before the, the peace negotiators and the Romulans especially are are wanting to get a close look at this and take a look at it. And this is where we see some familiar faces from other parts of Star Trek. One of the uh, people on the Romulan ambassador's staff in particular I want to talk about is Vrenak, who we of course see in the Deep Space Nine episode In the Pale Moonlight. I found it funny that they're giving him evidence that he's going to examine and I just really wanted him to say, it's a fake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, why is he always, he's involved in examining things and episodes about examining? <laughs> I know. And I'm sure, like, if we could talk to the author, I'm sure he was brought into this story because of that connection, just as a little, like, oh, he could say it's a fake, but it's not. You know, it's not a fake. So, right. Hmm. Also, by the way, I'm thinking about the hyperwarp. Is. Now, I don't know how technical you are, but I'm not. But isn't warp on the Enterprise-D a much faster version of warp than what we have on the original Enterprise, that they adjusted the scale? And I was just wondering if this hyperwarp is what we get in the 24th century. Could be. I mean, we kind of learn in this novel that the hyperwarp thing was a a smokescreen and and not a real thing. It was kind of uh, faked to make, you know, it was not an actual advancement. One fan theory I've seen as well is that transwarp in Star Trek three, that was actually like something that would propel us forward and make things slightly faster, which is what we get in TNG as well. So it's possible this could be kind of the basis for that. I just figured that even though this was smokescreen, there was still, there was something being developed. Yeah, it could be. That would be a nice kind of little bit of headcanon that would make sense a little bit. Yeah. But maybe it's just a fake. Yeah, it could be because, yeah, as we find out, they weren't testing a meta weapon, but the warp drive they were testing wasn't really something that was designed to be like revolutionary or anything like that. They'd combined, I think it was like Romulan cloaking technology with their warp drive for some reason, basically just so that the Romulans who they knew were spying on the test would pick up the fact that they were using cloaking technology. And that comes into play at the end of the novel. It's really like there's, there's plans within plans and it's just all these little tiny pieces that it's very intricate. And I don't know. That's something that I kind of almost want to talk about. Like, do you think this plan was too messy, too intricate, or I don't know. I wouldn't say it was because it worked. Yeah, but (laughs) there's like a million ways it might not have. Oh, yeah, there definitely is. Yeah. But I I like to believe that they were so precise in calculating the odds that they were able to figure that it was going to work for the most part. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's a good point because a big part of the plan was, you know, they didn't want the Romulans to think they were building a weapon of mass destruction. And they did think that, but even though that happened, it still worked out. So, yeah. And I like that you brought up the episode in a pale moonlight, uh, cause Vrenak is in that episode, but also I like to kind of think now that this novel is Harriman's in the pale moonlight episode a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the thing we're kind of dancing around is, all of this was a kind of put up job to get Harriman to be at Aldron station so that he could sneak on the Romulan flagship with a team and accomplish a mission that we'll kind of get to in due course. But all of this was just kind of set up to get him in that position that they could fulfill this mission. And it's pretty underhanded. It's pretty gray ops. It's pretty, you know, on the edge of, morality and ethics. And I remember I was looking at my review of this from a few years ago that that I did on my website, treklet.com. That was my main problem with the novel. I mostly 100% liked it, except for that little bit where I thought, oh, this is a little bit underhanded. It's a little bit sneaky. It's not really Federation-y. In thinking about it now, we have seen this sort of thing before and after in the Star Trek universe. I mean, I'm thinking of the TOS episode, The Enterprise Incident as well, where Kirk pretends that he's gone insane in order to get aboard the Romulan ship to steal a cloaking device. So that's very similar, actually, to what happens in this novel. Yeah, there's a parallel to that very similar situation where a cloaking device is being taken. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they the even steal a cloaking device in this yeah. novel. It's it's not part, it's not the main objective, but it's part of their plot. <laughs> yeah, and, and to your point, I feel like there is that fine line when we read books like this or hear stories on episodes where the Starfleet crews are doing this type of operation. Sometimes it is like a is this really a Starfleet way of things? Is this the ideals of the Federation? And then I start questioning things like shouldn't this be a Section Thirty One? mission you know it seems like something section 31 would be behind that they're pulling the strings they're they're doing the things that starfleet wouldn't do but i do believe that from your point we've seen this in star trek before and after and so Mm. yeah starfleet does it i think section 31 only steps in when starfleet doesn't they kind of wait wait to see if starfleet's going to do it and they go oh they're not going to do it then we will Yeah, I actually was thinking about Section 31 a little bit in this novel, and part of it is because of the inclusion of another character that I want to talk about, Elias Vaughn, who shows up in the Deep Space Nine relaunch novels, becoming the first officer of Deep Space Nine under Captain Kieran Reese. In this, he's in, you know, Starfleet Intelligence. He's an undercover officer and and sneaks aboard the Romulan ship with Harriman, and they're all disguised as Romulans. And we know, of course, in Deep Space Nine, they referred to him as having a Black Ops slash intelligence past. But he's also very, like, vehemently against Section 31. He hates section 31 and all that it represents. So I thought that was interesting that he has this kind of dark past, but there's a line there somewhere (laughs) where, you know, section 31, they do like assassinations and, and genocides and that kind of thing. We don't do that. We just sneak aboard Romulan ships and sabotage them and kill when we have to, as it turns out. Yeah. 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 There, there are a few dead Romulans here. Uh, And they do kind of pay lip service to regretting having to do it when they do do it. But 
they are getting their hands dirty and they're doing that kind of nation building dirty work stuff that that is not kind of fun to admit happens in the real world. Yeah, but he's wanting to get out of it. Like he's getting to that point where he's like, I want to do something different. I don't want to be doing this necessarily anymore. And it was kind of hard for me to picture Vaughn as being younger and as a yeah. lieutenant. <laughs> you know? I had a hard time with that as well. Yeah. yeah. It was like they talk about his jet black hair and youthful looks. And I'm like, ooh, I picture like Sean Connery's salt and pepper beard. Like it's it's right. really hard to kind of switch modes there. Exactly. Same here, because when we get him in the Deep Space Nine books, he's near 100 years old. And here he's much younger. And like you said, jet black hair. And I'm like... Uh, oh, uh, young Burt Reynolds. Okay. <laughs> That's like where oh, I, my Burt head Reynolds went. would have worked. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I pictured him as Smokey and the Bandit, <laughs> but without the mustache. No, I did keep the mustache on him. So yeah, there, there, it's a three person team. It's Elias Vaughn, Captain Harriman, and another intelligence agent. And they sneak aboard the Romulan flagship at Algeron station uh, and the Romulan flagship is called the Tomed. This is a nice callback because this is calling back to uh, the Star Trek The Next Generation season one finale, The Neutral Zone. There's kind of just a throwaway line that there's been no contact with the Romulan Empire since the Tomed incident 50 years earlier. You know, it's just this throwaway line. And I've always, I, I don't know, I, I don't know it doesn't really matter, but I always pictured Tomed as being like a place or a star system or a planet or something like that. And we find in this in this novel, it's a ship. And the whole incident is what happens aboard it when Harriman and his team sneak aboard. So I, I don't know. How about you? When you first heard that, what did you picture? And did it kind of match what you see here or something different? I, you know, I don't even remember what I pictured from that episode with the Tomad was. I think I just thought it was an area of space or something. Like yeah. a, the Tomad region or something. There was an incident or something to that effect. But I like that it's the ship and I like how this plays out. So I had forgotten about that line. I knew about the 50 years and I knew that this fits into that, but I forgot they actually said Tomed, so it refers to the ship. So that's pretty cool. That's one thing I really enjoy about this series of books is it can take just little throwaway lines and, and dropped names like that and really build out an interesting story around it. So as I mentioned, they're at Algeron Station, and by the end of the novel, we get the Treaty of Algeron, which is referred to in the next generation as well. So, you know, I, I love that they're able to just kind of build interesting and fascinating stories out of these little hints that we get in the next generation. Yeah, it's so amazing what these Star Trek authors can do and take little bits from all these different episodes, movies, novels, comics, and they just work them all in and time together. I, I don't think I could do it as well as that. You know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like they really have to have knowledge of all this stuff to be able to put it all in there just like you said throwaway lines that most people would forget about this whole incident and and what's going on with the governments and stuff i've said before the politics of the star trek universe is one of my favorite things and one thing i didn't really put in the notes here that i think would be interesting to talk a bit about is the klingons as well we see a lot of kind of what's going on with them and especially the fact that we have chancellor azetbur who we saw become Chancellor in Star Trek VI. She's the daughter of Chancellor Gorkon in that film. And we see the kind of difficulties she's having running the Klingon Empire with all of these houses that are conspiring behind her back and 
all of this palace intrigue and stuff. I thought that was a really fun part of the the book as well. And even just the fact that I get to picture Rosanna de Soto as a Zetbur again. I love that character in Star Trek VI. And it was really fun to have her as a part of this story. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. And she has her father's cane, which I loved. And mm-hmm. how she would you know, throw it down on the table or whatever, make a big noise with it to get attention and, and such. It, it, the whole thing with the Klingons, the Romulans, and the Federation worked really well for me. Just them sitting and talking and debating really had me interested. What I said to my wife is that the thing I really loved about this book is I could really visualize the characters. I could really see their actions, the way they sit, the way they stand, the way they walk. It was so described well that I could picture it. And so when you see like, you know, the two Klingons, you've got the younger one who's just, you know, wants to yell at everybody and that's not the Klingon way. And the older one kind of, you know, puts them back and you work for me. Let me handle this. I'm a negotiator. I'm a diplomat. I'll take care of it, you know, and just seeing that interplay was so good. And just, you can almost see everybody's eyes and how they're looking at each other. Do I trust them or not? Can you see that I'm being honest or can you see that I'm lying and not telling the truth? I I loved it. It was brilliant. Yeah. A lot of that interplay stuff, just these characters really come to life in this novel. And I think David R. George is just so good at writing this kind of high level stuff among characters, if that makes sense. But at the same time, also giving us really personal stories with the main characters as well. I I really like that balance he strikes here. Yeah, the personal stories. And that's the other thing I told my wife. She, of course, she hasn't read this book, but I was telling her the the main characters, Harriman and Sulu in this, we really don't know that much about them. We haven't had many stories about them. Yet, I'm so into these characters just from this book alone that I want to get on to the next one that David R. George wrote using these characters. Yeah, definitely. And <laughs> we'll we'll talk a little bit about that later too, because I'm eager for that as well. So I guess th- the main plan here is, like I said, they sneak on the Romulan ship and the whole thing is they're going to overload the warp drive of the ship, the singularity drive that Romulans use, causing the ship to explode and and take out a bunch of Starfleet outposts and make it look like the Romulans have launched an unprovoked attack on the Federation, causing thousands of deaths. Now, first of all, you might be saying, oh my God, they're going to kill thousands of Federation people and pin it on the Romulans. Not quite. They've, They've... evacuated these outposts and seemingly populated them with like people who have already died. They they've put in the records that these people are living and working here, but they're, they're actually empty. They're, they're going to make it, it's a false flag incident. Basically they're doing an attack on their own government, but pinning it on the Romulans basically without actually killing anybody, which that's pretty underhanded. I don't know. I I maybe still do have a little bit of a problem with this. (laughs) But it's pretty cool, though, because all these people that died were people that had previously died and were not on record as dying. So, for example, there's a character called Michael Thomas Iron Mike Paris that Demora Sulu knows had passed away. But before Harriman leaves for his mission, he whispers something to her about Iron Mike. 
that makes her look him up and sees that he's still alive and he's serving on whatever ship. And she's just like, well, no, he's not on the universe or whatever ship he's on. He died. I was there. I saw him. Why would the record say that he died? And come to find out through investigating this, that she picks up on the fact that this mission of them saying these people died, there was nobody on these stations and nobody on these ships that got affected, but these were people that previously died that they still showed on record as being alive so they could actually use them to show that they died on in this incident. Yeah. And that's kind of messed up, you know? It's it's kind of messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's good. Yeah, nobody's actually dying, but the point is made towards the end of the book, and I, I appreciated this point, that they are causing suffering. They're causing people to be distressed about a Romulan attack to mourn this seemingly horrific attack. And I like also that they make the point that it's not just Starfleet people that will be feeling this. It's people on the Romulan side as well. I like that that kind of lip service is given to the fact that, you know, this is a brutal plan and, but it's, it's, it's going to cause a lot of good. It could bring about peace. It could prevent a war that would kill millions or possibly billions but at the same time, we're causing people harm, you know, and I, I like that they acknowledge that at least. Well, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. That's true. That's true. But yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, I think that's a good way to look at it. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that they're preventing this war. But, you know, it's still like to have to be there to actually implement this plan and be part of it. That would be a tough thing to do. So, yeah, I don't know. I also like that because of, like you said, this little hint that Harriman gives to Demora, she looks this guy up and is able to piece it all together and is therefore going to be the ship. She's going to be commanding the Enterprise that's kind of assigned to do the background work to help the plan along as well. That's kind of neat that Harriman kind of manipulates it so that Demora is the one on the front lines there. Yeah. Now she's part of the, the whole plan here, but she's late to the game, but she's definitely involved. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about some of the other characters in this as well. So Gel Camamore is a character that I really liked from, and, and I think she's in this before she's in the post-Destiny novels, if I if I look at the publication debates and stuff. Yeah, that would be right. Yeah, and she later becomes the praetor of the Romulan Empire in the Typhon Pact novels uh, after Star Trek Destiny. And she's a character that I always really liked. And I think when I read those novels, I forgot she was in this novel. And then when I went back and read this novel, I was like, oh, wait, that's that character they use later. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I like her too. I, she's one of these characters that she's Romulan, but then she's on, you know, the good side of the Romulan side of things, <laughs> if, if there is one, you know, that you almost could trust her, that she sees beyond the traditions of Romulus and can see things from a whole universe standpoint and know... Mm what may be right and what may be wrong and what the Romulans do. Yeah. She's a good character. She does what's best for Romulus. I think like she's, she's a Patriot, yes. but her worldview encompasses more than just, you know, we are superior and must 
dominate everything else kind of thing, which is really refreshing and really interesting. And it's really kind of too bad that she's really used by Harriman in this plan because she is able to get Harriman and the team able to kind of facilitate them getting on the ship because she believes Harriman when he tells her that Vokar is planning this attack and we have to stop him. When in fact, they're the ones that are going to just make it look like he's committed this attack. So it's kind of brutal. Like, I really like this character and I'm like, oh man, she kind of gets used. Yeah, but how do we know that Vokar wouldn't have attacked? You know? Yeah, you know. <laughs> you can use that to justify anything, though. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, no, I, I really like this character. And I was actually really thinking about Senator Kretak in Deep Space Nine, kind of a similar character where she seems like kind of one of the good Romulans, but at the same time, she ends up being used by Section 31 in uh, the Deep Space Nine episode, Inter Arma Einem Sealant Legus, for them to kind of install their guy as the, the head of the Tel Shiar kind of thing or something like that, or the on the continuing committee in the Romulan Senate or something like that. And she's kind of left holding the bag and then her career gets flushed down the toilet. And I was like, I'm glad that doesn't happen to Camomore here. But like, man, Starfleet Intelligence has a history of just using Romulans who seem like good guys. If I were going to write a Star Trek novel, I would co-write it with you. See, you remember all this detail. You remember the episode <laughs> names. These aren't even in the notes. He doesn't write them down. Just, oh, the episode, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, which one was that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, again, I don't know why I have room in my brain for this stuff. I kind of wish I had more important things in there, but... It is what it is. <laughs> I wish my brain was like yours. <laughs> I want to know all this. <laughs> uh, the last character I want to talk about, and I almost forgot about her, is uh, Margaret Sinclair Alexander. And she didn't have a name when she was shown in the film. Novel writers have since given her the name, but she's the captain of the Saratoga in Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, the ship that first encounters the whale probe at the start of the film. And Bruce, you and I recently watched Star Trek IV for the live show on my YouTube channel. So uh, this was kind of fresh in my mind. I was like, oh yeah, she's in this novel. More, more just referred to, I guess, in this novel, but she's the commander-in-chief of Starfleet at this time. I didn't even pick up on this until you said it. So I, d I do know that we've seen her in some other things, not many other things, but I didn't recall what her name was. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I, I can't remember the exact history of this character in novels. I should have looked this up, but I know she's played by the the actress Madge Sinclair, which is where the Sinclair name comes from. She's called Sinclair in one novel, and I think she's referred to as the last name Alexander in another novel, if I'm remembering this correctly. And I think they so subsequent novels have hyphenated it as like a an homage to her previous appearances because like I said, she never got a name in the film, so novel writers kind of just did what they want. You look like you're looking something up, so I'm wondering if you're looking this up. I am. I'm looking her up on Memory Beta. Oh, excellent. <laughs> and I don't have time to, of course, read all this, but I'm noticing she was in the Crucible trilogy quite a bit, which was also written by David R. George III. Uh, she's been in some other books uh, like James Swallow's uh, cast no shadow and i know she's been in some comics she was also in excelsior forged in fire which kind of has a play a connection to this novel too 
So mm. yeah, she's been on a few things. Okay, I'm seeing a little bit of of stuff here. So it does say the captain of the Saratoga was unnamed in the film. The surname Alexander was established in the Star Trek IV The Voyage Home novelization. Serpents Among the Ruins author David R. George added her first and married names in tribute to the actress who played the role, Madge Sinclair. So, so it was this book. It was this book, yeah. So there we go. That's pretty cool. I like those little like inside bits there. Yeah, me too. So yeah, the the kind of finale of this novel is the Tomed explodes and takes out all these outposts and the plan works. The Klingons have promised to join, you know, if there is war, they will join the side that was attacked rather than the attackers. And, you know, Starfleet has made it look like they were attacked. So if there is a war, the Klingons join on their side. And we get this really cool scene with the Klingon fleet joining the Federation fleet. And the Romulans back down. They're shocked and appalled at what Admiral Vokar has perpetrated here. And, you know, they promise to withdraw and they close their borders and they have this treaty of Algeron that says they're going to cut themselves off from basically the rest of the galaxy as far as the Federation is concerned. So it all works, but it's pretty brutal. So it explains why the Romulans hadn't been around for 50 years leading up to the next generation. So check that box. But it also explains the relationship between the Klingons and the Federation. It shows that even after the Kittimer Accords, that there's still some distrust with the you know Klingons have with the Federation. It's but this kind of helps secure the relationship a little more. But of mm-hmm. course, we know that probably you know it's not going to stand forever. But uh, I think that what I saw in the Klingons is they're still questioning. You know, there's some that trust the Federation as much as a Klingon can trust the Federation. And then there's those that are very suspicious and are wondering, you know, and so it's, it's a friendship that's kind of rocky. Yeah. There's definitely some trust issues there. I think is probably the best way to put that for sure. And, you know, in the Klingon empire, of course, we get the assassination of Azet Burr and the rise of Karg as the chancellor who seems much more of a war hawk, I guess, than a Zetbur is. So I feel like that's going to kind of inform things going forward. And, you know, we know this is going to continue on in, in future Lost Era novels. The next one in the series was The Art of the Impossible by Keith R.A. DeCandido. Uh, there is another one set aboard the Enterprise B that was written quite a few years later, I think in 2014, One Constant Star. And I think you were saying um, you'd like that one to be the next one that we cover on uh, po- on Positively Trek here. Yeah, because it was this was so good. And then that one plays with these same characters of Harriman and Sulu. But some years later that I just I feel like we're going to see a lot of things in there that pick up with what we saw in this book. Now, I think I have read one constant star. I have actually. But it wasn't one of those things where I read this one and then that one right after each other that I'd like to do that because I think I'll pick up on some things in the next book that like little characters and little beats or whatever that are in this one that uh, get used in the next one. For sure. And this novel leaves it at an interesting place that I think will get picked up in kind of cool ways in that novel. So uh, one thing I didn't mention with the Treaty of Algeron, that little tidbit of the cloaking technology that they incorporated in the hyper warp drive. 
That was, of course, detected by the Romulans. So one of the stipulations of the treaty is that the Federation will not experiment with cloaking technology, which they readily agree to because they had no intention of doing that in the first place. They kind of set it up as a big thing that they would have to give up in this treaty, but they don't really care because they don't want cloaking devices, which is kind of funny. I, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I like that. And also, One Constant Star, I do have the Kindle version of it, so I decided to reload it. And as soon as I did, it's I have it somewhere here in like the middle of the book for whatever reason. And the first thing that popped up that I saw in here, Foxtrot 3, which was used in this book, the Foxtrot. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, right there is one reference. <laughs> so yeah. we're going to get it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And setting up for that novel, of course, at the end of this novel, Harriman decides uh, that he's going to take a ground assignment or take an assignment not on a starship and leaves the Enterprise. Demora Sulu is promoted to captain of the Enterprise B. So at the end of this novel, we get Captain Demora Sulu of the Enterprise kind of following in her father's footsteps as of becoming a a captain. And the other thing with Harriman that I thought was cool, and I was going to mention this earlier, we haven't really talked about his uh, girlfriend, his fiance, basically Amina. And I have to admit after the last lost era novel with the kind of fridging of a character to like motivate one of the character, I was kind of, I didn't remember in this novel how that all turned out. And I was kind of worried that something would happen and Amina would be killed because There's a little bit of that same setup at the beginning that like, you know, I love you. I'll see you soon. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'll see you in two weeks. I'm like, oh no, are they setting up something like this again? But thankfully, no, there's none of that in this. And at the end of the novel, it looks like Harriman and Amina are going to get married. So I loved how that turned out. I was so happy. (laughs) Well, the interplay of those words of like, oh, will you marry me? Yeah, sure, whatever. And they just, it it never really comes true. They do that exact same thing at the end of the book. And he's, and at at the end of that, he says, how about tomorrow? You know, and it's like, oh, (laughs) they really are going to do this. You know, I love that little moment. That was so wonderful. (laughs) But yeah, we're avoiding those tropes, you know, Yeah, which I like, mm-hmm. you know, the fact that, oh, yeah, you know, oh, he's got to love somebody he loves. They haven't really been together in a long time and they would like to maybe get married someday. Oh, she's probably going to die or he's going to die or something's going to happen where they can't be together. Oh, nope, that didn't happen. And it's like what we said about earlier, the the father who's dying that doesn't get along with his son, but, oh, you know, right when his deathbed, he'll say that he loves his son. He'll say those last words that make it all better. Nope. But he didn't say anything nice to his son or about himself, his son to Demor Sulu. But then she covers for him when she talks to Harriman and, and says that he did say he loved him. And mm-hmm. she kind of thought later she regretted that. She's like, maybe I should have been honest with John Harriman and told him what his father really said. You know, was it really right to put these words in this mouth of this jerk that I should just let him know that he still is a jerk? <laughs> yeah. I, I thought that was an interesting part of the novel and I don't know, like I, I kind of come down on both sides of that because blackjack. Yeah. He was a complete jerk, but he's dead. You know, who cares? Who cares what he thinks? He's not going to get mad at Demora for doing that. And what Demora did 
might have helped John a little bit, you know, the person who's still here who might benefit. So, you know, I kind of get it. I'm not really one for deception, but, you know, this whole novel is basically deception, right? So, you know, it, it kind of carries forward into the interpersonal stuff as well. So I get where she was coming from. I get why she did it. And I kind of really can't fault her for it because she made his life a little bit better, if that makes sense. Yeah, and it shows that they have a close relationship, that they're friends. And it's been mentioned here several times that, you know, they are friends. I mean, they've served together for 18 years. Mm-hmm. And she's been there right along with him through the whole thing. So, you know, it's it goes to that Star Trek thing. You're not just people who work together. You're also family. Yeah, definitely. Are there any kind of final thoughts, anything we didn't discuss, and maybe a rating that you have for Serpents Among the Ruins? I think we covered most everything I can think of, but uh, you know, I really enjoyed this novel. The first time I read it, I don't recall that much about it, like I said before, which surprises me because I was, as I was reading this, I was just thinking how much I really like this story. The characters are just spot on. I really cared about all the characters, even the ones that, well, maybe not Blackjack, but all the other characters I really cared about, no matter what side they were on. And I could just visualize everything. And the pacing was just perfect. Interesting story. That's why I want to move on to the next one. So uh, I will give this book four and a half destroyed Foxtrot star bases out of five. Wow. It's a really good, good rating. I think there's nobody on them, so it's fine. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And there's all these fake people that don't exist. Yeah. I mean, I have to agree. I really enjoyed this novel. I think I enjoyed it more this time around than I have in the past. And I really enjoyed it before with, you know, just kind of that one little issue I had, which was less of an issue this time around. I feel like I, I was much, I don't know, maybe I've gotten more cynical as I get older, but I was a little bit more willing to go with the deception than I was previously. So yeah, I I would have to give this, I think, Ooh, that's a tough one. I'm going to give it five out of five non fake documents given to Vrenak just so he can't say a word about it. Yes, that's good. I'm glad. Yeah, that's good. Well, when we're not uh, giving fake documents or not to Vrenak, Bruce, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And you can find me on Instagram at Admiral Rex. And you can find me on the Star Wars report every once in a blue moon. I don't know when the next time I'm going to be on. Riley Blanton uh, just got remarried, meaning that he got married last year with no real wedding reception because of COVID. And now he had the real wedding. Well, not, I shouldn't (laughs) say real wedding, whatever, a celebration with people. But anyway, I'll be probably be on that soon. And then occasionally I've been doing some shows as a guest on literary tracks. Well, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions talking all about Star Trek. You can find the show on Twitter at Positively Trek. We're also on Instagram at Positively Trek. You can reach out to us positivelytrek at gmail.com. Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash positivelytrek. If you want to help support the podcast, thank you so much to our associate producer, William Smith. We really appreciate everyone who supports us. Thank you all so much. So until our next episode, stay positive.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.